We're talking about the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22, so if you want to take your Bible and turn there, I would encourage you to use a Bible. Uh, it can be a paper copy Bible, it can be on your phone, it can be on your device, just use something. Learn how to use your Bible so that you can find where we're reading, so that you can look things up, so that you can use it on your own without us displaying it on the screen, because that screen isn't always there through the week, is it? <laughs> So learn how to use your copy of the Bible, Luke chapter 22. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table today. Now, we've asked you to come prepared with your own elements, whether you're participating online or you're participating in person here in the room. Uh, we put it out on social media. We put it in the faith newsletter on Thursday. But if you missed it and you don't have your elements ready, you're here in person, that's okay. It's all right. Take the pressure off. It's okay. Uh, if you're online and you don't have your elements prepared, bread, juice, uh, just run to the kitchen. Grab something now. Don't overthink it. Just make it sim simple. It's not about the specific elements and whether or not you have Welch's grape juice in the fridge. It is about what the elements represent. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. All right? I love sitting at the supper table. Don't you? Um, Thanksgiving was on Monday, and I hope you got to gather around a table, friends and family. Do you remember Christmas Eve of 2019? I know it feels like a decade ago, but um, I got to speak about the Christmas story, and I talked about that Norman Rockwell painting of the Christmas table, and mom's bringing the turkey in, dad's getting ready to cut. Uh, we talked about the Christmas family gathered around the table. I asked if there were any crazy uncles at your Christmas table, and we had people shout out from the crowd, maybe some crazy uncles present. Uh, I remember Steve was preaching just last year. I forget the scripture, I'm sorry, Steve, but I remember you made this comment, there is nothing more beautiful than the Father's voice calling out, it's time for supper, come home for supper. I just love that picture. The family supper table, the place where we reconnect, the place where we come together. Lots of times at my house, it's a mess. <laughs> we, we call it the splash zone. Wherever you sit next to the kids, it's the splash zone. You got to be prepared. My daughter right now, she eats like a bird. Jade, I love you. Daddy loves you. Um, she takes over an hour to eat the smallest portion of food. And lots of time we're sitting at the table like, come on, eat that last carrot. And she'll just hold it in her cheek like a chipmunk. But the table's where we reconnect, isn't it? Uh, I was told that my grandfather always used to say, you don't really get to know somebody until you've got your feet under their table sharing a meal with them. Sharing a meal. Community, communion, that's what we want our life groups to be about, sharing life together in everyday environments like sharing a meal. Maybe you had gotten out of the practice of sharing a meal with your family, busy schedule, whatever. Maybe in the COVID season, the schedule's kind of been erased for a period, and maybe you've been able to reunite with your family around the supper table. The table's where we reconnect. The table's where we come together, and the Lord's table emphasizes that more than any other table. It's what brings us together. Here's the bottom line. I'll give it to you right off the bat, just in case I lose you with some crazy illustration or something. There's a seat at the Lord's table for you. Do you realize that? It doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what kind of week you've had, doesn't matter what season of life you're in, there's a seat at the Lord's table reserved for you, and the invitation is yours. 
So Luke chapter 22, let's start in a word of prayer. Father God, I just want to praise you so much for this day. Thank you that we get to look into your word. Thank you that we get to observe the Lord's table. Thank you for how you broke your body and you shed your blood in our place for us. Thank you for that gift, Father. God, I think of the world that we live in and this season of life. I think of all the, oh, the political tension and the divide, the, the racial issues that we're experiencing in our generation and are coming to light. And uh, there seems to be more of a focus on that these days as we seek to end the systematic racial injustice in our nations. God, I just pray that you would help us not to judge the speck in our brother's eye when we have a plank in our own. Father, help us to come to this table with pure hearts, Father. Help us to forgive one another. God, if we've come to this table and we're holding or harboring something against one of our brothers or sisters, Father, help us to leave the elements right here, to leave the sacrifice here, go and be reconciled to our brother, and then return. Father, thank you for who you are today. God, I pray that you would speak through your word, Father. Help me not to get in the way. In Jesus' name, amen. So our series is called The End of the Beginning. We've been talking about Jesus announcing and instituting his kingdom. And he's coming up to the final days of his earthly ministry. Here in the story, it's literally tomorrow morning that he's going to be done that he will be crucified. And we've been asking the question, does the death of Jesus really mean the end? Or does it simply mean the end of the beginning? We've been talking about hard teachings of Jesus. We've been talking about the resurrection of Lazarus. We've been talking about Jesus proclaiming his death. Is it the end? Or is it just the end of the beginning? And a new chapter, a new phase, a new covenant that he's instituting. That's what we're going to look at today. Now, I've never realized just how many feasts are in the Gospels. It always seems like Jesus is going to or he's coming from a feast, doesn't it? I never realized until this season where we've been preaching through the Gospels, all of these feasts that Jesus participated in and traveled to and from Jerusalem for. So now we see in Luke chapter 22 that he's arriving for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Passover. That's what we're talking about. Um, the Feast of Passover goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. Maybe you remember the story, if you've been in church circles for any amount of time, you've probably heard about the story of Passover in the book of Exodus. God's people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they've been in Egypt for centuries. And they're under bondage, under slavery, Pharaoh is growing insecure in his leadership because the Israelites, the Hebrew people, they're growing, they're multiplying, they become bigger and bigger. He says, we've got to do something about this. So he makes the burden harder on them. He makes it more and more difficult as they're slaves to him. And the people cry out in their bondage, they cry out in their oppression, and God sends rescue. That's the story of the whole Bible right there. God rescuing his people when they cry out in their slavery and oppression. So God shows up in the burning bush in the wilderness speaking to Moses. And Moses agrees to go. It took some convincing, but he goes to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses time and time again, so God sends the plagues. We're talking frogs, bugs, gnats, locusts, blood, 
and the river. Those are the first nine plagues. We come to plague number 10, and it's the death angel which comes to every house, whether Egyptian or Hebrew, and takes the life of the firstborn son. But God being just and merciful and gracious and loving, he sends a way of escape. He sends a way of provision. And he institutes this Passover meal that we're talking about today. He says, find a spotless lamb without blemish. Shed its blood and paint the doorposts and lintel of your house with the blood of the spotless lamb. So that when the death angel comes to your house, it will pass over your house based on the blood of the spotless lamb that was slain. And then God's people were to take that lamb and consume it in this feast that we now refer to as Passover. They call it the Seder, the Seder. And every element on the table in that Passover feast points to the story of their deliverance when God rescued them out of bondage. This is the meal that Jesus and the disciples would be engaging in. It was only after the death angel came that Pharaoh finally said, get your people and get out of here. And the people were granted their freedom. They were freed from slavery to go to the promised land to follow God as he directed and he led them. That's the Passover meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. Now, any traditional Jewish culture, anybody in that culture would recognize the Passover meal. It's like Christmas and Easter is to the Christian. Everybody would know these elements. Everybody would engage in this on a yearly basis, the Passover meal. So Jesus has arrived. It's Thursday of the Passion Week. Thursday. Tomorrow he's going to be crucified. We are literally coming to the end of the beginning. For today, he will celebrate the last Passover meal with his disciples. Let's look at verse 7 in Luke chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat of it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them. They prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Now let me start with a question, okay? Let's have some fun. Let's get a little warmed up. Let's say it's your last night on earth. Now that doesn't sound like fun, but here's the fun part. What would you want to eat for your last meal? Let's say it's your last meal on earth. What's going to be on the menu? Do we have any takers? Chocolate. Chocolate, of course. Yes, sir. Ban oh, banana. Wow. Who are your parents? Incredible. In the back right over there. Alphagetti is awesome. Yes. Well, I, I'm kind of thinking more like steak, right? But alphagetti's good too. I'd take alphagetti. Now, now, here's a more important question. You don't have to answer this one out loud, but I want you to think of this. It's your last meal. You're having alphagetti, banana, and chocolate. Who would you invite? 
Think about it. Don't say it out loud, but think about it. Who would you want to have at your last meal that you're ever going to have? Who would make the list? And who wouldn't? Who would you want to make sure was out of town when it came time for your final meal? You know where I'm going, right? Um, The instructions for finding the room. I still remember Sunday school sitting at Parkside Baptist Church in Moncton, New Brunswick, and they pull out the flannel graph, and I remember seeing this servant boy with the jar on his head next to the well getting water, and the disciples coming, the little flannel graph people, show us to your house, following him to the house. What an incredible picture. And it's the same picture we see back on Sunday of the start of this week that we're talking through, Palm Sunday. Jesus says to two of his disciples, go into the city, you'll find a colt that has never been ridden, tied to a post, untie it. If anybody asks you, just tell them the master is need of it and bring it to me. Jesus sends two of his disciples, you'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water, follow him to his house, ask the master of that house. He will show you an upper room that's already furnished. And here's why this is crazy. Passover festival, Jerusalem is packed. The crazy part isn't that this person would be willing to host, although in our culture that's crazy. At this time with the Passover feast, that was just their custom, their culture. You host everybody because everybody's coming for the Passover. Everybody's coming for the same reason. But the fact that this room is ready and vacated and able to seat 13 people, that's a miracle right there. And that's where they have the Passover meal. That's how the story's set up. Here's what I want to point out. Uh, Let me go back here. The guest room, the upper room, it's it's built on the next level of the house. Again, we need to explain this because this is not our culture. They build a level of the house and as the family grows or the next generation or they need one of these guest rooms, they build another level on top. You can look 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha and the Shunammite woman, she's a wealthy woman. She builds a guest house on top of her house called the upper room for Elisha to stay in on his travels. This room was probably up above the house of the master who sent his servant to go collect water that day. And the table that they would have been gathered at for the Last Supper probably didn't look anything like this, probably doesn't look like your dining room table. But if you were in Palestine, even today, the custom is a much lower table, kind of like a coffee table, probably. And then there's mats and cushions along the floor. So when it says that Jesus and his disciples reclined at table, they were probably literally reclining next to this coffee table, either laying on their side, laying on their stomach, I don't know how you eat like that, but they'd have cushions and mats on the floor, and that's what it would look like. It probably wouldn't look like the famous painting, who did that? Was it Leonardo? Da Vinci? Not DiCaprio, close, Da Vinci. I I used to get confused with that one too. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Here's what I want to point out. Uh, The where and the when is not as important as the who. They could have had the Last Supper anywhere. The room's not important. The furniture's not important. Whether or not they were laying or sitting or sitting on couches in front of the TV, maybe that's how you have supper with your family. That's not the important part. The important part is who's there. That's the important part in this whole discussion. 
it doesn't matter where or when, the Lord's presence determines the feast and determines the celebration. The season and the circumstance don't determine your invitation to the table. Jesus is at the table, and look how it's worded. It says, his disciples were with him. Jesus isn't with his disciples. His disciples are with him. The presence of the Lord determines the feast, determines the celebration, determines the Lord's table. The presence of the Lord. Now I want to dig into a few of these men seated at the table with Jesus. I want to do a few character studies. I want to make this a little bit different, a little more interactive today, which is why I have two other chairs here with me. Um, I want you to know that you're invited to the Lord's table today. I think that you're going to see when, you, when we look at these characters that there, if there's room at the table for these characters, there's room at the table for you. You're invited. Whether you're cleaned up, dressed up for the festival or not, there's a seat at the table for you. And if you miss the invitation, here it is. You know, each of these chairs around the table represents a different character. And I don't know which character that you're going to connect with, but I just want to present them here to you. So, we're going to start with Judas. And I'm going to move over here. I know I'm throwing off all the camera people there. My apologies, guys. I'm going to do a little movement randomly. You know, if it were my last meal, I would not be inviting Judas. If it were my last night on earth and I get to enjoy my alphagetti and my banana and my chocolate, I am not inviting Judas. Forget that. Judas can go eat dirt for all I care. He ain't coming to my last party. But yet here he is. He's at the table. He came. He made the list. Jesus has him there at the table with himself. If we, if we jump back just a few short days, Jesus and the disciples, they're sitting at another meal in the house of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And Mary comes in and she's got an alabaster jar of expensive ointment. The Bible calls it nard. And she breaks the bottle, which just speaks of like no holds barred, totally reckless love, being bestowed on Jesus. She pours the costly ointment on his feet and then she washes his feet with her hair. And then Judas speaks up. Do you remember what he says? What do you think you're doing? What a waste. You know you could have taken that nard, you could have sold it, 300 denarii, we could have handed it out to the poor. What are you doing, Mary? You know, Judas is the one who holds the briefcase. He's the one who holds the money bag. He's in charge of all the finances. I don't really know why, because they have Matthew, the tax collector, who should have been a good financial guy right there with the disciples, but maybe they thought, oh, he would steal from it because he's a tax collector, so we won't trust it with him. We'll trust it with Judas Iscariot, who's stealing the money from the bag. He doesn't care about giving money to the poor. He cares about himself. He cares about grabbing that money to take it for himself. And it even adds more to the story because we find out as we go on just a few short days later 
that Judas takes matters into his own hand. Let's go back to yesterday. It's Wednesday. They've just had this nice meal. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, who was dead just a few days earlier, which is incredible. Mary does this act. Judas is upset. Maybe this is why Judas ran to the chief priests. I don't know. Maybe it was the straw that broke the camel's back. He had had enough. Look at Luke chapter 22 and verse 2. Let's go back up to the top of the chapter. Verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people, just like Pharaoh feared the people in Egypt. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now I'm struck by that phrase there, absence of a crowd. You know there's strength in numbers, right? There's security in community. The devil's schemes are to separate us and to divide us, to get us alone and to get those voices circling in our head, to remove us from healthy community. That's why one of our core values is community, truth, community, and engagement. We need to be in community. Judas is seeking to find a time when Jesus is alone in which he can betray Jesus. Now, Satan entered into Judas. I don't think we're talking about a satanic possession, like Satan literally came into the body of Judas and then everything from that point on was Satan just acting out his schemes in Judas' skin. I don't think that's what it was. Albert Barnes says it was more like an influence, strong influence over Judas. And Barnes says this, I thought this was so interesting. He, Satan, commonly does it by exciting and raising to the highest pitch our native passions. He doesn't make them contrary to our nature, but he leads us to act out our proper disposition. Which means Judah's native passion is a thief. He's a sticky fingers, isn't he? He's always digging into that money bag. So Satan just capitalized on the natural desire that was already in Judas's heart. Money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you've heard this discussed before, maybe you've heard it pointed out that in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah points out that 30 pieces of silver is the, the pay, the purchase price for a slave. Judas sells out Jesus for the price of a slave. That's how much Jesus was worth to Judas. If you took 30 pieces of silver in today's currency, it would be 370 US dollars. Judas sold out Jesus for $370. Well, we could convert it. Let's say 450 Canadian dollars. 450 bucks. That's what Jesus was worth to Judas. And he sells him out. Matthew Henry says, it's hard to say whether more mischief is done to Christ's kingdom by the power of its open enemies or by the treachery of its pretended friends. Judas is a fake. He's a hypocrite. He's a pretend friend. He's a phony. 
No, he arrives at this Passover meal with the disciples and with Jesus. His pockets are still clinking with 30 pieces of silver. And he comes into that room and he looks around and he thinks, now Matthew's an observant guy. Matthew's a tax collector. He's always got his eye on the bottom line. He always sees when the money doesn't add up. I can't sit next to Matthew. Uh, John is always going to sit next to Jesus because he's like the teacher's pet. He's going to be right there. Look, he's already got his head resting on Jesus' shoulder. Peter, I'm going to sit by Peter because Peter is a loudmouth who always speaks his mind and the attention's always on Peter. So if I'm sitting by Peter, nobody's going to pay attention to me. Now that's all speculation. I don't know. But I can just assume the sweat that's running down Judas' head as he walks into that room. And he's going to try and fake his way through the Passover meal. I can just imagine his, his clammy hands and his heart just racing. And he's sitting in his seat trying to be as small as he can. Trying to keep the attention off of himself. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He knew everything that was going on. And he ate the meal with Judas anyway. That blows my mind. Judas would be the last person at my Last Supper. He eats the bread. He takes the cup. You know, if there was a place for Judas at the Lord's table, there's a place for me. Because there have been a lot of days where I've sold Jesus out for a lot less than 450 bucks. A hypocrite, a pretender. And then Judas' worst nightmare, okay? I'm going to do a little scene change here. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Jesus calls him out in front of all the disciples. Jesus calls him out at the table at the Last Supper. I think I would have died and slipped under the table at that moment right there. Luke chapter 22 and verse 21. Jesus says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Do you think the disciples like got their hands off the table as quick as they could? My hand ain't on the table, it's not me. Verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. I love that. God's still in control. Judas can't do anything unless God allows it to take place. Think of Job, the start of the book. Satan comes to God and asks permission for Job. God is still in control. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another. Which of them it could be who is going to do this? I can just see Judas He's just inching lower and lower in his seat. And he's trying to sneak behind the table. And then this fight breaks out. Everybody starts going back and forth. It's like this emotionally charged argument. And everybody's saying, it's not me, it's not me. I'm sure Peter is fueling the discussion. And it turns into defending one another. Well, it couldn't be me because I. Well, it couldn't be me because I. And then look at what the discussion turns into. I think this is ridiculous. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Yes, you heard it right. The greatest. Can you imagine? Jesus says, I'm about to be betrayed. This is my last meal. And one of the people seated at this table is the one who's going to betray me. And the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. 
but we do that, don't we? Maybe it doesn't look this blatant in our life, but man, how many times have I looked around and thought, that person doesn't measure up. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm glad I do. What a sad reality. Luke 22 and verse 31. Let's talk about Simon Peter. Peter's probably hearing this discussion. He's thinking, I better put my two cents in because Peter always puts his two cents in, doesn't he? You can believe that he was one of the most vocal around the table at that point. He's calling out, he's, he's fueling that dispute, and then Jesus gets his attention. And look what he says in verse 31. Simon, Simon, Peter's name was first Simon. Jesus changed it to Peter, meaning rock, Petros. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I love that. Do you think Jesus prays for you? Do you think Jesus knows when you're going to come under temptation, when Satan's going to put his forces of oppression on you, and he's praying for you? The Spirit is praying on your behalf with groanings and utterings. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Look at, look at what Jesus says, this next part. I, I never really noticed this. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows he's going to fail. Jesus also knows he's going to be restored. He's going to return. He's going to be forgiven. And he's going to be one of the ones to strengthen his brothers. Remember, Jesus says, your name is Peter on this rock. I built my church. And then he says in verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter's all fired up. Jesus, I'm never going to forsake you. Jesus, I left the fishing industry. It was a lucrative business, and I walked away. I left it all behind. Jesus, you changed my name to Peter. I'm a rock. I will never let you down. Jesus, I watched your miracles. I heard your teaching. I saw your acts of mercy. I saw you on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've seen your glory. I will never turn my back on you. I will never forsake you. Jesus says, before tomorrow morning, when that rooster crows, you're going to tell people that you don't even know who I am three times. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. But when you have turned again, Peter, you're going to fail. You're all going to fail. Everybody around the table, you're going you're to flee, you're going to forsake, you're going to portray, you're going to run. But when you have returned... Even though you trip and you fall short, when you return in repentance and restoration, there's a seat at the table for you. I love that picture after Jesus' resurrection. Peter 
meets him on the beach and they're having breakfast and Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter gets the opportunity to declare his love for Jesus three times. I can't help but think there's a correlation. Peter denies Jesus three times and later in the story, he has the opportunity to pronounce his love for Jesus three times. Peter's restored. That's that's what this table is all about. Restoration, rescue, forgiveness, redemption. To provide means for people who fail, who fall short, who get trapped. You know, maybe that's you today. Maybe you just feel like, Ah, I want to follow Jesus. I declared my love for Jesus. I told Jesus, whether prison or death, I've got your back. But I've failed. And I've failed. And I've failed. And I'm kind of having a hard time seeing why I should keep trying and keep failing. You know, I've, I've heard it many times, and you've probably heard it too. Even in recent conversations, I've talked about this. The church is full of hypocrites. Have you heard that? The reason why I don't follow Jesus is because his followers are a bunch of hypocrites. They preach the love of God and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God, but then they go out and they just judge and just cast a shady eye. They're always posting online about why I'm doing this wrong, why I'm doing that wrong, and The only time I've ever been in church, they just told me I was wrong, 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 wrong. The church is just a bunch of hypocrites who say one thing and do another. Well, you know what? If I'm just looking at exhibit A, there are a lot of days where that's true. I hate to say it. Maybe I shouldn't say it as a pastor, but I keep saying we need to be honest up here on stage, so I'm going to say it. There are a lot of days where I'm a hypocrite. There are a lot of days where I sell Jesus out for a lot less than 450 Canadian dollars. There are a lot of days where I preach and I say and I pray love and grace and mercy and then I'm the one to judge my neighbor when there's a plank in my eye. This table is for us. If Judas and Peter could sit with Jesus around the Lord's table then there's a place at that table for somebody like me. You know, coming to this table isn't based on our merit at all. It's based on what he paid for us. None of the men sitting around that table that night at the Last Supper deserved to be there. Do you realize that? None of them should have got the invitation. Every one of them forsook Jesus and left in his time of need. We're about to talk about that next week. They didn't deserve to be there, but the invitation wasn't based on their merit. It was based on the price that Jesus paid for them. Can I tell you a little story? What do you think of my new jeans? Do you like them? When when I bought these jeans, my wife said, acid wash? Are you serious? Like, isn't acid wash so, so out? You know what I told her? They were $14. That's right, $14, yeah, which I thought was incredible. So uh, we're down in the valley, we go to the store, it's like big, they sold everything. They had groceries, they had Christmas decorations, they had clothes, they had all kinds of uh, like bolts and hardware and stuff, just a real random store. And this was the only type of jean that they sold. And I walked by and I thought, huh, oh, that's funny. And then I looked at the price tag, $14, well, I better get a pair, okay? 
the only style, the only color, I'm going to do it. So I'm, I'm pulling it off, and that's not the right size, pull another one. Somebody walks over, one of the workers there, and says, hey, we have a change room, would you like to try them on? Okay, I didn't know you could do that with COVID, I don't know how this works, but uh, yeah, show me, I'll try it on, perfect. And she says, you would not believe how much those jeans are worth. I said, oh yeah? They are $89 retail, and we've knocked them down to $14. Well, you know what? After owning the jeans, this is my second time wearing them. They ain't worth $89. Not at all. I think I've already ripped the, the thing down here. Yeah. Anyway, they're not worth $89. Do you know how you determine the worth of something? By the price that you're willing to pay for it. And you know what I thought these jeans were worth? About $14. Not a penny more. <laughs> And if I could go back, they might not be worth that much. But they definitely weren't worth $89. You see, somebody can put a price tag on something, but it doesn't show the true value until you see somebody willing to pay the price for it. Do you know the value of the men seated around these tables? Their price tag looked pretty low. Just common fishermen, dirty tax collector, People who didn't deserve a thing from somebody like Jesus. But Jesus was willing to pay his life for those men. Jesus paid his life for you, for me, for everybody watching online. Your worth is determined by how much Jesus was willing to pay for you. And I can tell you today, I got good news. He was willing to pay it all for you. Not 30 pieces of silver, not the price of a common slave back in ancient Israel, but he was willing to pay it all for you. That's what we celebrate at this table. And you get an invitation to this table to partake in the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes, not based on your merit or my merit, but based on the price that Jesus was willing to pay for us. That's where we find our value. That's where we find our invitation to the table. So are you ready to partake of the Lord's Supper with me? I hope you've got your elements with you. If you're online, if you're in person, if you don't, that's totally okay. These are different times. We've been trying to figure out where the Lord's table fits because we believe it's when we gather as a church together, something that we celebrate together. And if you know what I know, the last seven months have been different. But today we are preaching on this. We are going to participate in the Lord's table today. This is Jesus' final meal, his final night. We've talked about the men gathered around the table. If there is a place for them, there is a place for you, not based on your merit, but based on the price that Jesus was willing to pay for you, his very life. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 22. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves, Judas and Peter too. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You know there's a future hope. There's an expectancy that this is not the end, but it's only the end of the beginning. That there is a greater feast, a greater life, a greater kingdom to come that Jesus is instituting right here. Verse 19, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. No longer is it about some sheep in ancient Egypt. Jesus now embodies the spotless lamb that was slain for the forgiveness of our sins, for our redemption, our restoration, and our rescue from the bondage and oppression of the devil. So if you have bread, if you have crackers, if you have tortilla, whatever you have, would you just break it with me now? And Jesus says, this do in remembrance of me. Verse 20 says, Likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is doing a new thing. Jesus is instituting a new meal, a new covenant. It's pictured by the old, but Jesus personifies the new. He is the new covenant. As he hung on the cross and he shed his perfect blood as the atonement, the payment for sins, I want you to take the juice. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Would you just take a moment with me in silence? I want us just to consider the weight of Jesus' suffering, his pain, his innocence as he went to the hill of Calvary carrying the wooden beam of his cross on which he hung until he suffocated and died for me, for you, for Peter, who would pretend he didn't even know him, for Judas, who sold him out and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, his broken body, his shed blood. Jesus, I want to thank you for a place at the table today. I don't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. I don't have any inherent worth that would grant me the invitation, but Jesus, you paid it all for me. And therefore, I'm invited to come to your table, to have communion with you, Jesus, I'm thinking of those today who have never partook of this meal. In a spiritual sense, they haven't made that decision that you truly did break your body and shed your blood for them and you are the only way. That you are the spotless lamb slain to free them from their oppression, their bondage, their embarrassment, their shame, their guilt. Jesus, I thank you that you've done that for me. You've done that for everybody under the sound of my voice today. If you're watching today and you've realized for the first time that your worth isn't determined by who you are, your merit, the choices you've made in the past or will continue to make in the future, 
Your worth, your value, your identity is only found in the price that Jesus paid for you. And if he paid all for you, that's what you're worth to Jesus. If you want to receive the free gift of salvation today, would you just join me in this prayer as we close? It's not the prayer that saves you. It's, it's your heart to God's heart making a decision that once for all, your sins would be forgiven. Would you pray this with me? Jesus, I thank you today that you died on the cross to pay for my sin, to bring me forgiveness and new life. Today I claim that invitation and take a seat at your table Would you forgive me? Would you be Lord of my life? God, would I spend every day for you? Thank you for the new life I receive. In Jesus' name, amen.